If we could all open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, the third chapter. The book of Revelation and the third chapter. And uh, we're in a series, we're in the seventh part of this series. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, the church in Sardis today. Uh, and the title of the series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. And uh, the subtitle for this particular message is, Wake Up, Watch Out, Get Busy. Wake Up, Watch Out, Get Busy. Um, and, and, and that is, in short, a summary of, of what is, is said here. Um, so, um, we'll read in a moment. I'm going to clean my glasses because I just suddenly get up here in these lights and realize how smudged they are as we go. I, I told uh, Carolina the last time she gave announcements, Donna and I were traveling um, that particular Sunday. It was first, second Sunday, first Sunday, I think second Sunday in, in October. And she was giving the announcement, and we were trying to listen and stream online. And so she was the only one with the road noise that we could actually hear say anything the entire service. Uh, so I told her that in view of the scripture that says, unless they hear, they cannot believe, that she would be preaching you know, every now and then. Uh, from now on, <laughs> and uh, so um, anyway, so I don't know if she's begun preparing for that or not, but uh, no doubt she was clear and, and could be heard. I don't know if it's the, the pitch or, or what it is, but it worked well. Um, okay, now I can actually see what's before me. Um, <clears throat> Revelation 3, uh, beginning in verse 1, and I'll be reading from the NIV. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word, we pray that You, as You spoke to that church in Sardis, as You spoke to the seven churches through this message, that You would speak to us afresh today in our hearing. By your Holy Spirit, for, you, for, for the Spirit of God is present here. And the angel that is assigned to our church is present here. And we ask for you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2016, according to the United Locksmiths blog, in an article titled, Seven Biggest Security Fails of All Time, Number One. On their list. I won't, I won't go through the, the lesser ones. We'll just start with this one. Number one is the fact that in a controlled test, 67 out of 70 times, 
the weapon or explosive in a TS security check made it through. They're bringing through weapons dressed as just regular people traveling, going through explosives. 67 out of 70 times, it made it through. One of those, the, 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 the alarm went off notifying them that they needed to do a pat-down. They did the pat-down and missed the fact that they had a bomb strapped to them under their clothing. <laughs> oh, you know, I get there and I think to myself, my grandmother couldn't get through this, right? And, and yet, these are the things that are happening. So hopefully they've tightened security up since then. The point is, is that things are not as secure as they appear. Things are not what they appear Sardis, once the capital city of the Lydian kingdom, had an interesting history of both wealth and security. In the 6th century B.C., Croesus, famed king of their early empire and legendary for his gold, for the the river that runs through the city carried gold right there, and he collected vast amounts of gold and was as known for his wealth in gold as, say, Solomon was in in an earlier time. Early church father Lactantius, uh, writing about 850 years later, suggested that a man who is wise and just and worthy of life should bank his life on justice alone, for assuredly he who is without this, even if he should surpass Croesus in riches, is to be esteemed as poor, as naked, and as a beggar. The point being that his wealth was well enough known that it was used as a sort of anecdote for what one might have in great wealth. Sardis also had an interesting, had interesting history in regard to security. Concerned about the Persian army encroaching on his kingdom, Croesus, the same one, decided to attack the Persian army. The first battle ended in a draw, and he decided, well, winter's upon us, so we'll withdraw. It was conventional at the time that, that, that armies would stop fighting during the winter, for the sake, I suppose, of the soldiers who are out there freezing to death. Makes sense to me. And, of course, he withdraws to his uh, Acropolis, which is 15 foot, 1,500 feet high, surrounded by a wall, and, for the most part, has cliffs all the way around. So n- nobody thought they could ever get into this. And so he figures, we're not fighting, I'm secure. But, of course, the Persians didn't care about convention. And they came, and they started to attack the city, but unsuccessfully, until one of the soldiers says, I think I can scale that cliff. Now, nobody ever thought it was possible. But he and a few guys with him go and they scale the cliff. They then just walk in and open the gate to the city from the inside. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, lo and behold, they, they get taken by the Persians. 300 years later, uh, the, Antiochus the Great surrounds the city for an entire year with no success. And then finally one of the guys notices, hey, that part of the wall, do you notice all the birds? They got all these birds up there on that part of the wall, and they're always there. They must not have any guards there right up the cliff again. And so what do they do? Fifteen guys scale the cliff, walk in and open the gate from the front door after a year. It took them that long to figure that out, right? But they, they walk right in, open the, door, the gate, and, and the army comes right in. We must watch carefully because things are often not as they appear. That apparently impenetrable city fortress 
had twice been captured when the enemy army was able to break through what appeared to be its most secure wall. Despite its wealth and security, Sardis was not all that. And apparently neither is the church that worships in that place. So once again, we'll explore our text under the same five headings, Christ's credentials, Christ's commendation, Christ's critique, Christ's corrective, and then Christ's consequences. So we'll look at those five headings. Let's begin again in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, Sardis was on the westernmost point of the royal road, so besides its historic wealth uh, from gold, the city prospered greatly from trade. In AD 17, so some 70 years or or so, 80 years before this book is written, the city was devastated by an earthquake. And the then emperor, Tiberius, promised what would today be hundreds of millions of dollars for the repairs. So needless to say, they felt a strong devotion to Rome and and what it did for them. I mean, it was such a large amount that that the emperor was actually questioned for his sanity in committing that much money to the cause. Oh, and in addition to that, he gives them a five-year tax holiday. Wow, five years, we don't have to pay taxes because we've got to rebuild, we've got to do all this. So they were quite happy with Rome. And this loyalty, this fierce loyalty to Rome and Caesar, even though it's not as clearly evident in what is said in this letter, it was surely at play in the life of the church. In the ruins of Sardis that we have more recently discovered, in the foundation of the ruins, there lies a synagogue. It's interesting because you have the street and you have the, the marketplace stalls for the merchants to line up, and then further back you have a gymnasium that was dedicated to the worship of Caesar. It was was a gymnasium dedicated to the cult of Caesar. And between them, you have a synagogue. And there's not a lot left of the synagogue, just the foundation of the synagogue. But in the middle of it is a stone table. The furnishings of the synagogue was a stone table. And on this stone table, on each end of the stone table, uh, is um, a, a, uh, the, sorry, Roman eagles, there we go. The Roman eagles that are sitting on each end, carved in. That, meaning that the synagogue there, the Jewish worshipers there, had already begun to mix their worship of Yahweh, their allegiance to Yahweh, with their worship of Rome, the emperor, and their allegiance therein. A couple of weeks ago, I saw a picture of a church. More recent times, obviously. And this church had a flagpole out front. And on the flagpole, they had a Christian flag flying right below the American flag. Now, I don't think a Christian flag is anything at all. I think it's silly, to be honest with you. But if it were something, if I believed it were enough that I would hang one outside my church, it would be heretical to hang it below the American flag. Because I have then mixed my worship of the empire with my worship of Christ. These are the kinds of issues, though more overt in Rome and more covert in our lives, that we have to think through as we're engaging this book. So what are Christ's credentials, which he 
with which he begins for this church. First, him who holds the seven spirits of God. How many of you, just quick show of hands, have ever been confused by that phrase, the seven spirits of God? I could put two hands up. Like, you just kind of look at it, you scratch your head, right? And, and so there are a variety of options out there, like God has seven Holy Spirits and not one. And then, and then the other end of it is, you know, people will suggest, and understandably so, well, this must just be referring to other spirits that he has, like angels, that seven angels, their spirits, right? But in apocalyptic, angels would be called angels. I mean, that's just what you do. And we have in chapter 1 something that really helps us understand at least what's clearly stated about these seven spirits of God, because in chapter 1, you, you have a Trinitarian formula which has the Father and you have the Son, and right between the two you have the seven spirits of God which are before the throne. So, again, we know there, at least, that it's referring to the Holy Spirit, but why the seven spirits of God? Well, surely it's indicative that since this book is being sent to seven churches and, and it's sent with grace and peace, that the Spirit is present for all of those churches to receive the grace and peace. Amen. But there's some other reason that I think we can, we can rest assured of um, that, as to why it is. It's a very likely reference to the seven spirits uh, mentioned in Isaiah 11, the first three verses, in the Septuagint, the Greek reading of the Old Testament. And it, we, can, we can rest confident that it probably fits because throughout this book, most of the allusions to the Old Testament and quotations are from the Septuagint. So, it was the one they would have been using. And there, we read this. This is the NIV. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from, uh, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now, we all know that to be Jesus, the branch. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He'll delight in the fear of the Lord. Well, You've got six listed here, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, but you've got this, uh, in, in the Septuagint, they add a spirit of godliness in, in verse 2 after knowledge. So there are seven spirits mentioned, and the sevenfold spirit of the Lord, um, that the branch of Jesse, Jesus, uh, that he will bear fruit by that spirit. So it's the fruit of the spirit, which is, of course, the food of the kingdom. It's the way we function in the kingdom of God. So the seven spirits of, uh, he holds the seven spirits of God, but he also holds the seven stars. Now we know from chapter 1 and verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So these prophetic messages, and we talked about this back in at the beginning of chapter 2, but these prophetic messages are sent to the angel of its church. Um, it may seem odd to send a, a prophetic message to an angel, and maybe not the pastor, or maybe not the elders, or maybe the deacons. I mean, you're going to send it to somebody, but no, you send it to an angel. But in apocalyptic literature, that would not seem odd. And we have to ask, then, what is the significance of sending a message to an angel, um, or to these angels, seven of them? Um, well, I, I think, for one, it tells us that there's more than meets the eye going on at your church. A whole lot more than meets the eye going on at your church. Like the stars or heavenly bodies which represent these angels, these uh, are heavenly beings that help to guide and guard the church to which they are assigned. We might think of a, of a guardian angel. Despite how things may appear, the church is a spiritual entity that operates in a spiritual world. 
That makes things like prayer, sacrificial giving, worship, preaching, resisting sin, obedience to Christ, and so forth, much more significant. And it makes things like the comfort of the seats, the sound and the light system, the landscaping, much less significant. These angels are a source of help for the churches. In Daniel, angels were both a source of protection for God's people and would do spiritual battle on behalf of God's people. So I'm glad we have an angel, amen, (laughs) that helps in these matters. I I rejoice in that. You may also recall that uh, on the coins of that period, it was common to see a picture of the emperor holding seven stars. We have that picture up again that we had shown at that time. I don't know if we can get right there. You'll notice on the back of it, you've got the emperor naked, which means that he's like a god. That's the way you would picture a god would be, be naked. And you've got the seven stars, which, and he's sitting on what? The earth. So you have this idea that, that he's not only lord of earth, but he's lord of the heavens as well. And so by Christ holding the seven stars, he's, it's a polemic. It's, a, it's saying, no, not Caesar, me. I'm king. And so it's a, an affront, if you will, when he says uh, that he holds the seven stars. He's countering Caesar's claim. Jesus has authority not only over what is seen, but over the, all the unseen powers of the universe. He, he rules, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, far above all rule and authority power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church or even through the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So that's Christ's credentials, but then we get to Christ's commendation. In four of the seven messages, the commendation begins with, I know your deeds. So when we hear Jesus saying, I know your deeds, what we expect is to hear a commendation. But what follows is a critique. I mean, you can almost hear John pausing as he's, you know, writing this and just saying, psych! (laughs) Gotcha! Despite their glorious appearance as a church, which we'll see in a moment, there is nothing good to say here in this place where we would find the commendation. Maybe they were already so puffed up, Jesus didn't want to contribute to it, whatever the reason. He has nothing to commend here in this place where the commendation is. So that leads us to Christ's critique. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Things aren't always as they appear, are they? You have a reputation. Now, that Christ's evaluation of five of the seven churches begins with the phrase, I know your deeds, emphasizes the importance of deeds, of what we do. Now, I know that's not a popular message, but I'm supposed to preach this text and not some other text. And quite clearly in this text, deeds are vital. Jesus is a firm believer in what James, his brother, said, his earthly brother said. Faith by itself, is not accomp- if not accompanied by action, is dead. And that one is to show their faith by their deeds. Jesus informs the church at Sardis that things are not as they appear. 
And it has something to do with their deeds. They're being judged by their deeds, which, of course, we read in plenty of places in the New Testament that that is indeed the basis of the judgment. Now, we much prefer to be judged by our intentions. I mean, I do. Be perfectly honest with you. Our, our ideals. I, I want to be judged by my ideals, what I think is right. But not by my deeds. I mean, at least married men have learned not to want to be judged by their deeds, right? We much prefer intentions and ideals. Uh, Donna has never asked me that I'm aware of or can recollect, did you intend to take the trash out when you saw that it was full? <laughs> it's never been one of her questions. I mean, she wasn't really concerned with what my intentions were. You know, was it ideal for you to have an empty trash can? That was never one of her concerns. Donna has not said, did you intend to pick up after yourself when you were finished? No, she much rather says, uh, are you finished? <laughs> and when she says, are you finished? I realize that is not a question. <laughs> that is a statement that I am not. And I begin looking for what it is that I have failed to do. She knows me too well. You see, she is way more interested in my deeds. Way more interested in my deeds than she is in my intentions or ideals. I know your reputation. (laughs) When Jesus begins by saying, I know your reputation, you you, kind of know there's another shoe to follow, right? I mean, yeah, I guess I didn't fool you. And he says to this church, I know your reputation. And the Greek word uh, there is anima. And, and it's the most commonly translated name. And the reason I even bring that up is this word, anima, is found four times in these six verses, which means that there's a significance to it. The other significant things is, is the word works or deeds and any th- several other references to those deeds, which are throughout, not by using the word itself. So those are the two key things going on. In this letter, or the, uh, rather, this prophetic message. I told you I'd say call it a letter, even though they're not. Um, and, and this one, here in this critique, uh, it's the first place we find it. It's identifying the problem in Sardis. The, uh, it appears three times in the consequences or the rewards for those who overcome. We'll get to those. But the bulk of the church thinks that it has a great name. It turns out the few remaining loyal servants of Jesus will will have a name in the end in the book of life. Now here it's translated reputation, which is a fine translation. According to to BDAG, uh, here, the way it's used, it means recognition that is accorded a person, or in this case a a church, on the basis of performance. Uh, Reputation, well-known name, you know, uh, reputation, fame. Fame. The church in Sardis had a present reputation of being alive. This wasn't their history. This was their current experience. Their performance was great. They were famous by all accounts. By all outward appearances, they are very much alive. If the great commandment had been, look alive, they would win the prize. They've got it. Now, performance can look a lot like work. So why is he complaining about their deeds? Look how we're performing. We're doing it all right. 
We can be busy, even spectacular, but not be doing the works that Jesus wants complete. So Jesus says, you are dead. As with the Pharisees of the Gospels, they are like, quote, whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. And on the outside, they appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, they are full of wickedness. I don't know what the particulars were in that day that would make a church seem alive. Maybe the music was lively, the lighting and sound were amazing, and oh, the performance. Executed flawlessly. We really don't know what it was in their case, but there are hints. We've seen a similar pattern in two of the other churches, or we've seen one of them, we'll see the other one shortly, but you're probably familiar with it. Compare this prophetic message to these two others. Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. So it appears that you're poor, yet you are rich. Laodicea, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And then here, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, given those comparisons that in these other places have a reference to their wealth, and given what we know about the wealth of that particular city, in its history and in its present experience as well, I would suggest that the church's wealth, affluence, success in comparison to other churches is somehow involved. Since the word reputation is based on performance, this church was quite sexy, as they might put it today. (laughs) A couple of decades ago, I I did a series on the seven message to the churches, uh, casting the whole series as an exercise in church shopping. Uh, Based on the common criteria that people might use to find a church today, Truth is, likely few of us would would even consider choosing Smyrna or Philadelphia, the two healthiest churches in the bunch. And most of us, quite frankly, would lean towards Sardis or Laodicea, the two that have nothing to commend. Being dead is related to their works. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. We we can't divorce that from their deeds. As uh, Greg Beal points out, their, their main problem is not slumber in the sense of apathy, but in regard to works. Works which they could do, but since all was glamorous on the outside, no one stirred themselves enough to do them. They were lulled to sleep by their satiation and prosperity, In the context of Revelation, it is likely that their incomplete works involved a shared allegiance of their hearts with the beast and the harlot. Christ's corrective leads us to number four. Look with me at verse two. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Well, look at there's there's five instructions here that are the corrective. Five things they need to do in this corrective. First, wake up and watch out. Well, wake up is literally that. The word means wake up. It wasn't the word one would use to wake someone up from a proper sleep. 
Like, you know, in the morning, wake up, it's time to get going. No, not that. It was used to wake, awake the person charged with standing guard or standing watch in the night, maybe on the wall of a city. So wake up is, uh, wake up and start watching. Be on guard. That's what you're supposed to be doing here. When Jesus said you are famous for being so alive, but you are dead, it's as if you're, you're watching a movie of that war that I described earlier where the guys are climbing up the wall. You don't know if they're going to make it. and Maybe they're going to fall. Maybe they're going to have success. And as they start to come over the top of the wall, if, if you're like me, I talk back to the TV. It could be sports. It could be a, a show. My wife is like, why are you talking to the TV? They don't hear you. <laughs> Yes, they do. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I, I will engage it. And if, if, if you're watching the scene and the guys get up over the top, you then look at the city and you go, you dead. Jesus sees the beast climbing up the side of that cliff toward that city. And they've just ignored it. And they've ignored it. And he's about to climb over the top. And he said, you know, I know you think you're doing so well, you're so alive. You're dead. You better pay attention. It's urgent. There's no time left to be messing with this. It's urgent. So Christ's first corrective is wake up and watch out. Secondly, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, since this is followed by, For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God... What remains refers to deeds, somebody's deeds, either the church's deeds at large or the deeds of the few that remain that we'll, we'll, we'll hear about in a few moments that haven't been mentioned so far. And this word, your deeds have been found unfinished or incomplete, uh, that, that's a word just like our own that would often be used in the context of finding someone guilty or not guilty. And in this context of Jesus as judge, He's the judge who is judging them by their works. And, and, and when all is said and done, he says, and the jury has decided, not righteous. Not the thing you want to hear. Do a quick assessment of what remains, he's saying to them. Shore, up, shore that up before you lose it. Now again, what remains might be some minimal deeds that are still being done in the church. Uh, not enough to garner any commendation, but still there's something that remains. Or, I think more likely, it refers to the works of the few who remain that have not soiled their clothes that we'll read about. In, in which case, it's then follow their example. Strengthen what remains. Give strength to this. Listen to what they're saying and doing. And, and that will help you. Because even what remains is about to die. They better get busy. They're about to be devoured spiritually. Thirdly, we read, remember what you have received and heard. Remember what you have received and heard. I'm reminded of Paul's statement in Philippians 4.9. Whatever you have learned, emathete, that's the verbal form of the word we get mathetes, disciple, from. Whatever you have learned, a disciple is a learner, not just of knowledge, but a learner of a way of life. They put it into practice. Okay. But, but Paul says, whatever you have learned the, um, or received or heard from me or seen in me, 
Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, what they had received included things like the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel account of Jesus' life, teaching, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. They must remember it so they can hold it fast. And that's the fourth thing, hold it fast. This is literally keep it. Now, it can mean to keep something like a treasure. You need to keep it. You need to hold on to it. Don't lose it. That can be used that way. But it, like our word keep, it, it can also mean uh, that you are to put it into practice. You are to do it. Um, like, like when we are told to obey God's commands, we are told to keep them, which means to do what they say. Um, so in the language of Philippians 4, 9, it, the hold it fast means put it into practice. Get busy. And then at the end, interestingly enough, he has repent. Change how you think. You would generally expect this first. One's thinking needs to change before their actions will. However, there's such a sense of urgency, it's, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, start doing and don't stop before you've also changed the thinking that got you into the way you were. But you better get busy. There's no time to sit around and work on your thinking for a few months. Once you get that right, no, get busy. True repentance certainly involves all of the above, and so it also serves as a a culmination. All these things culminate in real repentance. And then finally, we get to Christ's consequences. First, we have the negative consequence there at the end of verse 3. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. If you do not wake up, if you don't wake up and start watching, if you don't strengthen, if you don't remember, if you don't put these things into practice, if you don't repent, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. The consequence for not obeying those five instructions above is that Jesus will come like a thief who doesn't come when he might be expected but when unexpected, and by the way, not for good, but for no good. They aren't going to be enjoying the day of his return. I often hear believers say, I can't wait till Jesus comes back, and I hope that's true for them. But I do occasionally wonder, really? <laughs> really? Are you sure? Are you ready? See, the, the emphasis in the New Testament is always on readiness, not on hurriedness. We want to hurry him to come back. And the New Testament says, well, you, you might want to get ready. That might be the thing. Then we get to um, positive consequences. For, for those who have not soiled their clothes, the few remaining, he has much more to say about their reward. Um, yet you have a few people, we read in verse 4, in Sardis, who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, to, uh, ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are evidently so few people that it didn't even merit a commendation for the church at large. But there are a few that have not soiled their clothes. Christ actually says, 
Yet you have a few names in Sardis. There's that word anima again. A few people. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like when, you know, they talk about um, um, airlines, you know, the, the pilot gets on and checks off, well, we have 216 souls on board today. They, that's how they refer to it. Well, here it's names, but it refers to people. But this emphasis on names is now being brought because these are the names who have not soiled their clothes. Before we had those who thought they had a name, but it turns out they ain't got one, not in the heavenly courts. But these few have a name. They have not soiled their clothes. Now, to be soiled, it's, you, you could translate it defiled. In other words, made dirty by the things they did, by their actions. You don't separate the clothing from the person as if, well, this is just something outside of them. It's not them. No, they're made dirty by what they did. It's, it's just a metaphor for their character, their nature, how they are viewed before God in that situation. They Apparently, these, these believers thought they could conform to the ways of the world in some fashion and not be affected. But if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Or like, you know, I, I, don't ask me how I know this. We'll just assume some other people have told me. But, you know, you're, you're, I'm only going to do a little touch-up paint. I, I'm just going to, 10 minutes. I don't need to change out of my good clothes. <laughs> yeah. And then you hang on to them for a long time thinking, well, I can use them when I'm just working around the house, but they're not really what you want to, you know. So, you know, there's that. <clears throat> Uh, you just need to write them off. In Revelation, the kinds of works that soils one's uh, clothing includes cowardice, disloyalty, vileness, murder, sexual immorality, practicing magic arts, idolatry, and lying. Five of these have been explicitly at play in the messages to the churches so far that we've seen. Cowardice, disloyalty, or unbelief, it's often translated, but it's it's. Apistus, so it's not having that faith, that allegiance, that faithfulness, that loyalty to Christ. Uh, sexual immorality, idolatry, and lying. Obviously, if you're, 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 you're doing emperor worship and professing to be a Christian, the, 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 there's some untruth coming into play. The sleepiness of the majority was not mere apathy or complacency, but it was sinful deeds. And that's why their clothes were soiled. But there were a few that had not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white. Like those described later in chapter 7, these, uh, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of great tribulation, the, the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The few faithful in Sardis, like those in Pergamum and, and Thyatira experienced tribulation because of their loyal, their loyalty, their pistis, their faith, their allegiance to Christ. They've, they've suffered affliction and persecution. Others in the church likely snubbed them thinking they're, they're suffering because they just aren't with it enough. They're too holy. They need to loosen up. They are coming out of the tribulation of living faithfully in Sardis. And they're wearing white robes with Christ on that day. These robes attest to their purity, just as soiled clothes attest to others' compromise. 
one's robes are made white, interestingly enough, by the blood of the Lamb. Now, there's an irony here. You dip the robe in blood, and it comes out white. Go figure that one out. <laughs> but that's the picture. They're made white by the blood of the Lamb. Now, you know, of course, in real life, blood doesn't tend to make things white. But they are. They're made white by the blood of the Lamb. His life, His death for them, has cleansed them. But it didn't stop there because they're the ones who have not soiled their clothes. It transformed them as well. It had a real and living effect. It wasn't some sort of uh, uh, fiction that, that they were living in. When the Romans had an important military victory, there was a procession that would follow. And in it, the leading Roman citizens would wear pure white togas. They would make them extra white by using chalk to make them vibrantly white. And they would walk with the victor down the streets of the city. If you wage war by maintaining loyalty to Christ, you have a part in the celebration victory. You may lose out in the joys of this life, but you'll have much greater joy in the next as you walk with Him down the streets of that city, dressed in white. Thanks be to God. All who are victorious, we're told, who heed the message of this book, which uh, uh, can include even us, if we are victorious, will be dressed in white. And then the promise. I will never blot out the name of that person, here's name again, from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. In a church that thought it had a name but had none, there are just a few that have a name before the Father because they have been faithful to Christ. Now, what is this Lamb's Book of Life? From the Book of Life elsewhere, the Lamb's Book of Life, what, what is this Book of Life? Well, to be sure, I, I don't know that we can define it precisely or exactly. I would love to. A lot of ideas about it. But there is plenty of background to draw on. In the story, you probably remember the story of Moses. You've seen the Ten Commandments. They, 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 he goes up on the mountain. He comes down and they have made a golden calf. And they're you know, worshiping that. They're involving themselves in all sorts of lascivious behavior and feasting and, and, and horrible things involved with the worship of that idol. <clears throat> and and then, then Moses has the Levite strap. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the Levites strap swords on their sides and go out amongst all those who are participating in this idolatry and randomly just using the sword and killing them. And then after that, he pleads with the Lord for the lives of the rest of them. And he says, But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And throughout Scripture, you have numerous references to this book. And it seems to be something that records the names of the citizens in the heavenly city, Zion. Names of the wicked, we find, can be blotted out of it. 
So it's an interesting metaphor that's used in, in numerous places. One might imagine the few believers who have remained loyal in Sardis may wonder if their names will be blotted out along with their idolatrous fellow members of the church. But the answer from Jesus is reassuring, never. Your name will never be blotted out. They may get blotted out of the citizenship roles of Sardis, their city, because of their lack of loyalty to Caesar, but they will not get blotted out of the heavenly city because of their loyalty to Jesus. In Revelation 20, verse 12, we discover that at the judgment there will be books, one recording our deeds and another the book of life, by which we will also be judged according to what we had done as written in it. Well, that's a bit perplexing in some sense. How, how do you have these two books, one that has my deeds and one by which we'll also be judged that according to what we have done as it is written in there? So which is it? Some suggest that the Lamb's book of life is the book of Christ's life and His deeds, which bring not death, but life. Thus, when we are loyal to Christ, our names are written into the register of His life and deeds. Whatever it is, it's a registry for sure of the heavenly city, and these believers will not have their name blotted out of that registry, thanks be to God. Amen? The person who maintains loyalty to Christ, their name will be confessed by Christ before the Father and His angels because they were not ashamed to bear Christ's name before men at a cost to themselves. In closing, just a couple of questions. One, if, if, if Christ were to come and visit us, would He find our deeds complete? Would our loyalty to Christ be in question? Or will we have shrunk back in fear? Would our works be things which produce life or contribute to a, the culture of death? Would they degrade the image of God in others through vile or immoral acts? M might there be for us aspects of idolatry in which we have participated or we've even incorporated into our lives? Despite its wealth and security, Sardis was not all that. And apparently neither was the church that worshipped in that place. Gulf Coast has a reputation of being a friendly church. But when was the last time you came in, sat your things down, and went around introducing yourself to people you don't know? Engaging them. Talking to others. I mean, how else do you be friendly other than the people that are here be friendly? Like, this building's not particularly friendly. I've been in here when it's empty. <laughs> not, nothing particularly friendly about it. It's got to be us. So what about a reputation? We have a reputation of being a place where we can engage Scripture deeply, but when's the last time you talked with, to your neighbor about your king? We talk about reaching into our neighborhood, and when that comes up, I, I, I guess the question is, what's our internal response? Is it fear? Apathy, or love, loyalty, and hope. I pray we develop the love, loyalty, and hope. How exactly is Jesus calling us to get busy? A danger in the church at large today, and one to which we could be as easily susceptible as anybody, is that we are more concerned with building a name for ourselves, a reputation. A babble. 
Our motives seem to be more like those that built Babel when we're trying to make a name for ourselves than Christ who told people not to tell anyone about what He did for them. We, we as a church aren't seeking to make a name for ourselves. We're seeking to make a name for Christ. And we don't exist to get Christians to switch churches and come to ours. We exist to spread the name of Christ in a lost and dying world. Lord Jesus, may it be that you would find us alive and not dead. May it be that our works would be found complete. May it be that we would hear your call. And more necessary, hear it with the same urgency that it's communicated to the church in Sardis. Lord, help us to see the very things to which we are blind. In Jesus' name.